Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers discuss legal news, events, topics, stories, and, well, whatever else strikes our fancy, really. I'm your, co- I'm your host, rather, John Amarillo of Tafts, and Hollister, and co-hosting the pod with me today is Sally Pazetsky-Steele of Pazetsky and Berliner. Say hello, Sally. Hi, everyone. This is Fear and Loathing in the Law. With us today is Brian Cuban. Brian is an authority on body dysmorphic disorder, male eating disorders, and addiction. He's the author of best-selling book, Shattered Image, My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphic Disorder. He also writes extensively on these subjects. His columns have appeared on CNN, Fox News, and the Huffington Post, and in online and print newspapers around the world. Cuban speaks regularly about his recovery and breaking the stigma surrounding eating disorders, addiction, mental illness. His newest book, The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption. I love that title, Brian. <laughs> little alliteration there. <laughs> is available on his website, briancuban.com. Brian, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the bar, yeah. ironically. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's uh, been a nice day in Chicago. Tell us a little something about your uh, about your journey. Well, I am a one-time practicing lawyer. Now, my license hasn't been suspended, and I haven't been disbarred, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. <laughs> I am in recovery from alcohol and cocaine addiction, and I have been in recovery since April 2007. I grew up in Pittsburgh. I have three brothers. A lot of people know my older brother, Mark. I have a younger brother, Jeff. We all live in Dallas. And... My journey has been an interesting one from trading Dallas Mavericks championship tickets for cocaine. You Uh, mentioned that before. I I got (laughs) to tell me that story. What happened there? Back in June 2006, the Dallas Mavericks were going to the NBA championship for the very first time. And this was before I went into recovery, as you might imagine. (laughs) I was going to get some pretty good seats for those games, right? Yeah, I would think so. I also had the opportunity to get a couple free tickets, very nice ones for some friends. I took those tickets, and instead of giving them to my friends, I traded them to my drug dealer for $1,000 in cocaine. Twice. (laughs) Interestingly, I flushed it down the toilet twice. Is that right? Yes. stressful to read. Not because, yes, I mean, it was stressful to wake up the next day and realize I had flushed now $900 worth of cocaine down the toilet because I had done some. But it was kind of like we call the quote-unquote insanity of addiction. Mm -hmm. I had even drilled fake electrical outlets in the drywall in my house to take the cocaine and put it in all these little Ziploc baggies to hide it behind all these fake electrical outlets. Like the cops, the DEA, and the drug dogs have never thought of that before, right? (laughs) Was your house ever raided by the authorities? In my mind, it was. In your mind. I was very paranoid. (laughs) In my mind, I heard the cops. I I saw the— SWAT team coming through my window like at the end of Christmas vacation. Oh, wow. That's dramatic. There's a lot of paranoia with uh, hardcore cocaine addiction. Yeah, that's a theme throughout your book is the ongoing sort of constant struggle between I have to get my life together and because people are always kind of looking over my shoulder, you constantly talk about worrying about other people and the authorities and the police, but something overpowered that. Clearly. Absolutely. That is why we know that addiction is not a choice. And it's interesting. A lot of people get lost in that nuance. Was the first time I did a line of cocaine a choice? Absolutely. That was a choice. It was a choice that was influenced by a lot of environmental factors, a, a lot of feelings about myself, about self-loathing that goes back that go back to childhood. But it was a choice. Mm. The biological process of addiction that followed from that 
was not a choice. Addiction is a disease. I did not do that first line of cocaine in a bathroom in Dallas, Texas, saying, you know what? I'm going to lose my career as a lawyer. I'm going to get divorced three times. I'm going to go to jail. And that's great. Yeah. And I'm going to love that. It wasn't a choice. And we should probably uh, start out by saying that this is a problem that a lot of lawyers face, right? There was, uh, I remember a few years ago, a study from the American Bar Association and the Betty Ford Foundation came out. It said uh, one in three practicing lawyers are problem drinkers. 28% suffer from depression. 19 show symptoms of anxiety. I don't know any any lawyers at all that don't show symptoms of anxiety, so I question the, the study on that regard. Uh, 29% of new lawyers defined as their first 10 years of practice are problem drinkers. Um, I, th- I mean, this is this is epidemic proportions, isn't it? Absolutely, and the, the study was actually just this last February. Oh, okay. So yes, yeah. and actually the lawyers under 10 years, millennials, I think everyone but me on, at this table, <laughs> and uh, which is interesting because the last study, which I believe was in 1990, found that lawyers more my age were the problem drinkers. So it has reversed. Okay. And this is a self-reporting thing. I mean, it's probably even worse than absolutely. Than they say. Absolutely. You could I, ask me and my friends any day, and nobody asked us in that study. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, and. As to other substances like cocaine and illicit other illicit drugs, there weren't even enough lawyers responding to an anonymous survey to have a clinically significant finding. Oh, really? Because lawyers are so stigmatized about something illegal, they could lose their ticket. Right. That they're not even going to respond anonymously. Where alcohol use is legal, it's more accepted. So that was easier. So let's talk about that. Um, It's obviously a gigantic problem that's out there. What, if anything, is being done to address it? You're writing this book. Well, the study came out first. The Betty Ford ABA ABA Hazleton study came out, which told us about the problem. Uh, Now, the ABA has just released a task force report. We were talking about this that is very extensive that has all these recommendations. So there are things being done. There was a New York Times article that came out, The Lawyer of the Addict. Awareness is slowly being created. So how are we going to implement strategies to take it from awareness to recovery? And that is a good question. We need law firms need to get involved, big, small. Bar associations need to get involved because the majority of lawyers are not in law firms, right? They're solo practitioners. There are even both real, really small firms. Right. So they don't have the infrastructure. So they don't have the infrastructure and they don't have the stop gaps for someone to say, hey, something's going on here. Right. A lot of social social isolation within small firms, solo practitioners. I'm so- we have to we we have to implement procedures and, and we need the, the legal assistance programs to get involved. We need yeah. law schools to get involved because a lot of this starts in law school. Addicted law students become addicted lawyers. A study came out a long time ago that found that law students tend to come into the law school relatively mentally healthy, but they come out worse than they were. <laughs> I don't think that's surprising. gonna surprise anybody, yeah. But where that really fits in is that we all bring our baggage to the game, right? Mm-hmm. Lawyers, we bring our childhood baggage, we bring our home baggage, we bring our mental health baggage. So a law student walking into law school that may have unresolved mental health issues, even though they may feel like they're on a level playing ground, those issues can be triggered by stress. Those issues can be triggered into drinking as a way of dealing with stress. And the same thing happens with lawyers. Mm 
We bring our baggage to the game. Lawyers are people too. Let me give you an example. I talk to lawyers all the time and all they want to talk about is, okay, I'm going to get sober. I need to do this. I need to work on my, you know, I, I need to repair my relationship at home. I don't want to lose clients. I just need to string together sobriety. Yeah. That is right. We need to deal with where we are, right? Right. For me, I had to get sober to deal with all the other stuff. And I start asking questions. And I don't ask questions about drinking or drug use. I ask questions about family. I tell them about my family. I ask them about their relationships at home. I ask them about growing up. I've had lawyers tell me about sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse at home, mental abuse, childhood, you know, childhood abuse. Now, I am not a counselor. I refer, I right. say, we need to refer you to people yeah, who deal with that. Thing. But the point is, I they say, I've dealt with that. I've dealt with that. I've dealt with that. But so, they haven't. But they haven't. Right. But they haven't. They compartmentalize it because they don't want to allow themselves to be vulnerable. So if right? I if I hear you correctly, it's the chicken and the egg, which is kind of one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Is there something about the law that attracts addictive personalities? And that's why we see these high numbers. Or is it the other way around that, you know, there, there's something about practicing the law that turns people into these addictive personalities? Lawyers as a profession, I do not believe, are predisposed to addiction. Okay. Because that would get into genetics. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So genetics loads a gun, environment pulls the trigger. Genetics is what predisposes us. So we know that as a profession, that doesn't it doesn't work that way. Does the profession attract a personality type that couldn't be more easily triggered into drinking, drug use? Sure. We're type A personalities. You work hard. You may not have healthy ways of dealing with stress. Yeah. And the legal profession is not a profession that provides healthy ways of dealing with stress. It's, it's, a, it's a drinking culture. Isn't it's a it? drinking culture. It's a yeah. drinking culture that starts in law school. That's how you network. When I was going to Pitt Law in 1986, we had beer keggers right in the student lounge. Yeah. I don't know if that's going on now, but that's a drinking culture. I mean, yeah. call me, you know. I'll just spitball here that that's a drinking culture. Sally's been there more recently than I have. Sally's that whole thing. Yeah, I'm also in uh, the Chicago Bar Association. Does a show every year, and it's uh, called Christmas Spirits for a reason. <laughs> it is uh, more more drinking, less performing. I would say that's right, and that is not to say. I'm just kidding. Not really. No, I mean this. This is this is an issue. <laughs> this is an issue. It's not. It's with a lot of bar associations. Although I think bar associations are starting to reevaluate that approach. We can't cater to a profession in terms of okay, if you don't have a problem drinking, you're just you know everyone has a problem. Everyone is a problem drinker. Everyone is not a problem drinker. But we can recognize that as a profession, we can take steps that there are other alternatives for people who don't drink. What do you mean? Well, I've, I see bar associations now doing rock climbing. Oh, yeah, okay. Law firms want to have their holiday party. Are we offering the pr appropriate alternatives for non-drinkers? Are we empowering people who have, you know, who don't want to be in that, people who are in, are we empowering people who are in recovery to not feel shame to attend these events? That's really interesting. I know a lot of big, uh, I never even thought about that, but Christmas parties are really just an alcohol-centric activity. That's what everyone thinks of as soon as. <laughs> I mean, that's the best part about them. Yeah, usually, right, for some people, but I didn't even think about there are people out there that 
will probably feel ostracized if they don't partake. They feel ostracized, and it is a major stress factor. I have lawyers tell me that is one of the most stressful times of a year. I do not want to go to this event, but I have to go to this event. Everyone's going to be drinking at this event. If I don't drink at this event, will people think something differently of me? Will people bring it up? Then will I have to tell them I am in recovery? It becomes this stressful, stigmatized chain of thought. Let's let's uh, let's talk about that. The, the stigma that's attached to this. It, one of the things we were talking about before the pod got going today was that a lot of law firms aren't really dealing with this because there's a stigma not only attached to the lawyers as individuals, but if a law firm comes out and says, we're going to address this problem because it is a problem at our firm, that they may be afraid that clients flee, that it affects their you know, their good name and image, that kind of thing. Uh, what what can be done about that? How do you convince law firms? It, that's a little easier for bar associations, Right. But how do you convince law firms, where a lot of lawyers are, um, you know, big, medium-sized firms, to address an issue like that when they have those concerns? Okay, well, let's let's give the context of this. There was a Wall Street Journal study that came out where it talked about how some bigger law firms were actually putting counselors on retainer, okay, to to help lawyers who in may house have, in house, yeah, or or just bringing them in, okay, to deal with lawyers who may have mental health issues who may want help, and. There was one, I'm not going to call the guy out, mm. but said, we don't want to do that. It was a managing partner firm. We don't want to do that because people will think our lawyers are quote unquote crazy. Okay. So if we do anything to help, right. people will think our lawyers have a problem. Acknowledging the problem That's is a problem right. itself. So we're thinking about it from the back end forwards. Right. How about taking the steps so our lawyers have fewer problems? One of the things we talked about that I feel law firms should consider are mental health panels. If you have a law firm that's big enough, say medium to sized law firms, a mental health committee that meets twice a year that talks about whether how things are going from a mental health standpoint and how we can better empower lawyers within the firm to do better and to seek help that also encompasses wellness. Mm -hmm. What is so hard about that? Why is that such a problem? Are you finding at all, though, that right now we're living in a time where mindfulness and wellness is kind of on the forefront, especially for millennials? Are you finding at all that law firms, which are traditionally very, you know, male-led and I don't know maybe what you're not about. quite what? as open what? What? as um, other cultures, like social media cultures, um, to have this kind of wellness program installed? Are you finding that there is a little trickle of that? In yes, and, and we also, you bring up a great point about wellness. I am a big fan of wellness. I'm a big fan of mindfulness. And I'm a big fan of anything that supports a recovery program in that way. We have to distinguish between wellness as a recovery support and wellness as an excuse not to deal with addiction. Okay. What do you mean? I see people talking about wellness and they bootstrap on addiction where we have all these addiction stats, these problem drinking stats. Hey, wellness. Yeah. What we don't want are lawyers who may be dealing with an a problem drinking issue, a drug issue to say, you know, if I just meditate, that's going to be everything I need to do. If I just start running, that's going to be everything I need to do. No, we have to have baseline recovery issues, baseline recovery procedures. And then when you move into recovery, wellness becomes part of that. So my issue with wellness is that it's taking on this all-encompassing type aura 
where we really need to focus first on helping people get sober if they're dealing with that, helping people deal with the depression. Do we need to be on antidepressants? Do they need to be getting uh, psychiatric help? Yeah. That is different than wellness. There's also a preventative aspect, though, to it for people who have not yet gotten to that point. That's right. That's right. And and wellness is is wellness is great for that. So my issue with wellness is when we confuse confuse things. Mm -hmm. There's wellness for people who just want to, you know, want to have a better mental health outlook who may have no issues whatsoever. There's wellness for people in recovery who want to have a healthier recovery. Wellness is not a baseline treatment for addiction. Mm -hmm. There's um, Nicole, somebody who helped us prepare for this podcast today. In her law school experience, she did have a class uh, about, you know, alcoholism and, and certain addictions in the legal world. I don't know if you know this, Brian, but uh, Illinois actually just implemented a requirement that one hour of our continuing legal education has to be around. I don't really know the specifics yet because it's new, but it is something, one hour of our requirements that we report every two years. That's great. And I know the ABA has recommended that every state adopt that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good thing. And I think that's a great first step. But again, I I don't want people to think I'm anti-wellness. I just... I just want, I just believe that wellness should be placed in the proper categories within law firms, within recovery. You don't want this to get lost in kind of a lot of the white noise of wellness. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Bringing in fruit once a week in a law firm isn't going to That's right. And yoga is great. Right. Meditation is great. But let's be sure it's within its proper perspective. It's a good point. It's probably also a good time to take a break. We'll be right back. Need a lawyer? Steve? I do. You look like you need a lawyer. The Chicago Bar Association Lawyer Referral Service has been making referrals for over 70 years to attorneys who have been thoroughly screened for experience in over 40 different areas of the law. Call 312-554-2001 or visit us online at www.chicagobar.org backslash LRS. So, Brian, one of the things that we mentioned in the last segment was uh, the drinking culture that exists in the law, not only in law school, but in the practice of law, especially for young lawyers. Uh, can you tell us more about that? What have your experiences been? Yes, the drinking culture for me starting, well, my drinking culture started at Penn State. We have to remember, I was a quote-unquote alcoholic by my sophomore year at Penn State. Sophomore year undergrad. Yes, yeah, sophomore yeah. year undergrad. Yeah. So I was already drinking heavily at Penn State. I already I was bulimic dealing with that. I was exercise bulimic, which is the compulsive uh, exercise for the sole purpose of offsetting calories, running 20 miles a day. So I was bringing all of that to pit law. And it's important to understand that the only reason I went to law school was that I could repeat the same behaviors that I did at Penn State and not have to show them to anyone. You mean just because you stayed in school? To stay in school. That is the the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance. That is the only reason I went to law school. That's it. No other reason. And so I walked through the doors of Pitt Law with that already under my belt. Okay. So when you walk into the, through the doors of and into a drinking culture, it was perfect. Every other night's a different bar. The law student's going to a different bar, although they knew how to, you know, the ones who didn't, weren't problem drinkers knew how to prioritize things. Right. 
when I wasn't doing that, I was back in my apartment binge drinking a bottle of tequila just to be able to walk out of the house. There were, again, the happy hours within the law school lounge right. where we had the keggers right in the law school lounge. Yep. So Sounds familiar. you have the people like me who already had issues and could be easily triggered into issues. You have the other law students who it's not going to, they can have a good time and move on. But then you have the, have the other law students who may not have those issues, but all of a sudden they are learning to drink as a way of dealing with stress. Right. And they may have experimented with alcohol before as a teen or in college. and But in law school, we are really now socializing to drink as a way of dealing with stress. And back then, there was really nothing else. We did not have legal lawyer assistance programs of any type back in the 80s, let alone ones that also cater to law students, which many states do, but some don't. Uh, so we did not have awareness of counseling. There really wasn't an awareness of 12-step. Alcoholics Anonymous is the biggest one. In my day, for a law student who was a problem drinker, who a quote-unquote alcoholic, you were either not in recovery, you were in a 12-step program, or you were in a hospital. That was it. We didn't have residential treatment. We didn't have this awareness where students were talking to each other, deans of students who were aware. That has changed, but has the drinking culture changed? I think we are stepping back from that. But once you become an alcoholic law student, a law student who learned, who is now culturalized to deal with problems by drinking, right. you are going to take that boom right into the legal profession. Where it's incredibly useful for business generation, networking. Ab absolutely. Where you are now networking, where now it may be encouraged as a, you know, as a way of bonding. Absolutely. My question is, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, um, you know, men versus women, you were saying also this ties into an eating disorder that you also had. Did you find that, you know, I, I imagine that a woman experiencing a lot of this stuff would probably be recognized a little bit faster than a man uh, going through all of this stuff. And so did you ever notice this in women versus men or how did that kind of... Are you talking about alcohol or the eating disorder? Everything, because I imagine one kind of rolls into the other sometimes. Or, uh, but, but let's you, talk about alcohol since that's well, a theme. The ABA study found that there were some different demographic groups where men and women drank differently. But from an anecdotal standpoint, I mean, all I hang around, all I eventually hung around with were other lawyers and other non-lawyers who were drinking, dealing drugs, and doing coke. Right. So it wasn't like I was making those distinctions while I was not in recovery. <laughs> As somebody in recovery, I do believe that we deal with uh, the, I do believe that there are different ways of dealing with how we express ourselves in terms of alcohol, in terms of addiction. But again, I'm not a clinician, and I my observations would be more anecdotal mm -hmm. than something that is study-based. I think the ABA Hazleton study really goes into that and how the different sexes uh, and different demographic and age groups, you know, the, the problem drinking rates. Did your friends or family ever say, hey, you know— do you think you have a problem, or did you just avoid them? You, you Your distance, brother Mark's known for being pretty blunt guy. Well, you have to remember, that's a great question. The first one it came to head was in the summer of 2005, when all this came to a head, 
when I became suicidal, when I believed in my heart that I was doing my family a favor to end my life, that I saw nothing but a black hole in my future. I saw no career as a lawyer, a career I never wanted in the first place. I saw that no relationships. I'd already been divorced three times, all failing as a result of drugs and alcohol. I saw nothing of value in my future. So what changed? What I, I bought a weapon. And I put that weapon on my nightstand and somebody fortunately alerted my family. And my two brothers showed up at my house and I had that 45 automatic on my nightstand. There was cocaine everywhere. There were alcohol bottles everywhere. There was Xanax lined out all over the place. And I was into the black market Xanax. That was when it really became evident that there was a problem. And that was my first of two trips to a psychiatric facility. Before that, I had really distanced I had distanced into the people who did drugs, the people who drank, the people who party all the time. And during that time, I went from a lawyer making about six figures, which in my mind was the, the marker of success, money, because money allowed me to buy more drugs. Right. Money allowed me to party. I was always broke because I was spending all my money on cocaine and drugs and al- cocaine and alcohol. And so I went during that period up to the point where they came in my house with that weapon. I had gone from a successful lawyer to having no clients at all, none. Really? All of them failing. I was doing cocaine in the bathroom of the law firm I was of counsel to. I was doing cocaine to be able to work, uh, walk into a courtroom. I was high in courtrooms. I was taking cases I shouldn't have taken because I needed that money. Uh, we, We were joking and... Remember, I said, uh, as I said earlier, it wasn't, I, I still have my license, but it wasn't for a lack of trying to lose it. Yeah. Yeah, I can. And I did many things that crossed the line. Mm-hmm. In your mind, was there a, a point, like, can you pinpoint exactly the time where it, it went from sort of gray to just all black? Or Yes. And that was in 2005. That was the summer of 2005. And that would venture, that would segue into a conversation about suicide. Mm-hmm. And we've had, you know, lawyers have a very high suicide rate. And as I think back on that, and I even ordered my psychiatric notes from Green Oak Psychiatric Facility. I ordered from two reasons. One, as a lawyer, in case someone said that never happened. (laughs) I wanted to be able to say, here's the psychiatric notes, both my brothers in the room. So you're wrong. Two, I wanted to, it was such a fog that I wanted to be able to look back at it and see what I was really thinking. See what was said in the room. There was a lot of blame on my family. Of course, it wasn't their fault. There was a lot of blame on my brother, Mark. Of course, it wasn't his fault. There was a lot of talk about having to live in his shadow. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't his fault. His his success is wonderful. There's another, we can talk about that too, what I call name fame. When someone has no identity of their own, I had I hated myself so much it became easier when Mark became famous to be that, to be Mark Cuban's brother, rather than to be someone I despise when I look in the mirror. I could be Mark Cuban's brother and date girls half my age, every relationship based on cocaine, of course. Oh, so you could just leverage that relationship to feed the addiction. Absolutely. It was easier to be that. It was easier to walk, to be to be this fake love, this fake adulation that had nothing to do with me 
to get this love that I wanted so badly from my mother, from my family, to love myself, this artificial love that wasn't real, but I could walk in in nightclubs, everyone loved me. People put cocaine in my pockets, everyone loved me. Yeah. I was, you know, 45, girls in their 20s, everyone loved me. And so why not be that? Yeah. Instead of being Brian, instead of exploring that Brian who was hurt so badly because he didn't think he was loved as a child, much easier just to fill the void with fake love. So summer 2005, that was the turning point? That was the darkest. And that was when it just went like that. I went from a fog into a suicidal state. And mm -hmm. you don't know why. You can't pinpoint exactly. It just happens that fast. Yeah. It happens that fast. And when we talk about suicide, that is one of the things I'm always careful about. And it always just breaks my heart when people talk about selfishness. It's selfish. It's a selfish act. I thought I was doing, I didn't think in terms of selfish. I, in my mind, it was perfectly logical to me that I was doing my family a favor. It was not selfish. It was an act of love to take my life. I get that. I just don't know why people have to do it by jumping in front of the train in the morning and ruining everybody's commute. If no. I don't, is, is, is that a serious question? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just trying to lighten it just up like, a little bit. I, yeah. <laughs> well, so, we'll, but, go ahead. So, talk about suicide. We, we have to be, I, I try to be really careful about that because it was a fog that my mind just switched over just like that. That was, that was not even my quote unquote rock bottom. What was? My rock bottom was, and I really hate that term, I prefer recovery tipping point. Because rock bottom has become this term that we assume you have to experience the worst in your life to recover, right. which is exactly what I try to get lawyers and law students to realize we don't have to do when I say today is as good as it's ever going to get, right? Yeah. We don't have to wait for quote unquote rock bottom to come. I had started dating this girl, Amanda, in 2006, right around uh, Dallas Mavericks cocaine tickets time. I met her while I was at the end of a week-long cocaine binge celebration of my birthday, which was very normal for me. You know, every birthday celebration was just a week-long binge, <laughs> drug and alcohol binge. Yeah. And as usual, I was able to pull it together for enough time to make it seem like I was just this normal lawyer, everything's great. But eventually, in addiction, those worlds do come crashing together. Right. And so we start dating. She moved in with me. April 2007, she went away for a weekend to Houston. Next thing I know, it's two days later. I'm lying in bed. There's cocaine spread out all over the dresser. There's Xanax on the dresser. There's alcohol bottles everywhere. She's looking down at me, what's going on here? Trying to process the scene. I had had a two-day drug and alcohol-induced blackout. And of course, as a, I'm a, as a lawyer, I'm thinking, what lies can I tell to get out of this? You know, I'm going through every permutation of something that I can say that will deflect away from this scene right. that there's no way to get out of, right? right? And she had no idea. She had no idea. She had no idea. So I decided I needed time to think of a better lie. So I said, okay, we're going to go back to Green Oak Psychiatric Facility. She didn't even know about the first time. I said, let's go here. I need help. Figuring that would mollify her. Okay. So we're standing in the parking lot of Green Oak Psychiatric Facility waiting for another psychiatric intake. And a few things occurred to me. One, there wouldn't be a third trip back because I'd be dead. Two, it occurred to me that she was gone. I'd go too, right? She's crying. She's hurt. She's angry. She actually, Amanda actually stood by me 
And we dated for over 10 years while I found recovery, built recovery, rebuilt the trust that I had destroyed. And I had to recover for me, not for her, because without recovery, whether she goes or stays, you're still in trouble. Sure. And she stood by me, and we got married last October. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Thanks. So relationships can survive that. Yeah. But it takes work. And I realized early on it had to happen for me, not for her. Let me give you an example of the microcosm of what I realized. She had just moved in with me, so now she's moving out. Okay, that same night, I'm at, she's gone. She's moving. Yeah. Stay, we'll go to a hotel. She's going to move out the next day. I could have put my head in the sand and allowed her to move out and not played any part of it and just said, go. I helped her move out, and I looked her in the eye, and I helped her move out because I knew if I didn't take ownership right there, I would never see her again, and it would be a detriment to moving forward in recovery. So as much as it hurt, as much as I was just racked with guilt and knew that she was hurting and she was just devastated and betrayed, every piece of furniture to her car, I was there. And I believe that was a big part of her staying. Do you think uh, kind of showing her all of your cards at that moment in time was something that kept you accountable for the rest of your actions? I think in the end it did. But I didn't look at it that way at the time. Mm-hmm. I would I, I I showed her all my cards because there was just no way out of it. Yeah. I mean, she had walked in, in with it all right there. Yeah. I mean that that that's what we call an orgy of evidence, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> Every lawyer would love that. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. So there was really no way around that taking responsibility for that. But I had to take responsibility for me. Yeah. I had to take responsibility in my recovery. So helping her move out, knowing that I may never see her again, she clearly hadn't made a decision at that point. And I would guess at that point her dis- mindset was probably, no, it's not happening. Mm-hmm. But that was important to take ownership of what I did and of the, of my first step in recovery right there. So you've said a couple of times as we've been talking about recovery, uh, you but use let, the phrase, today's as good as it gets. That's right. But let me, let me, I want to finish the, the thought. Do we have time? Yeah, of course. I want to finish the thought because the third thought in that parking lot mm-hmm. was that I was going to lose my family. And that hadn't occurred to you before? You said you were keeping no, your distance from that. It hadn't already. occurred to me before that time because families may love us unconditionally. But there are probably going to be limits on there, and we hope they do love us unconditionally. Some families don't have that. There are probably going to be limits on a family's willingness to watch somebody they love destroy their lives and kill themselves if they're not going to at least try to recover, take that first step. And I knew I had reached that point. As a funny aside, my father, our father, Mark, Jeff, and I, 91 years old, a veteran of the Pacific, a veteran of uh, Korean War, he and his older brother, Marty, my father was the middle of three boys. Like, I'm the middle of three boys. He and his older brother, Marty, fixed cars in the same place in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, from the end of the Korean War till his older brother died in 1999. Now, it was like a bad marriage sometimes, yeah. two brothers working together. Strong bond, but though. But it was that bond of brothers, the three boys, and he constantly tried to instill that bond in Mark, Jeff, and I growing up. He'd Mm -hmm. say, 
guys. He'd go, Mark, Brian, Jeff, or he'd get our names wrong and go, Jeff, Brian, Mark. (laughs) Don't worry about it, Dad. My parents do that. Don't worry about it, Dad. We get it. What's your name? One time my mom called me by my dog's name. Yeah, He'd say, wives may come and go. Well, for me, they certainly have, but he's kidding, right? He's kidding. He'd say, girlfriends may come and go. Being tongue-in-cheek, we hope you have great relationships. But when push comes to shove, all you have is each other. So no matter where you go in life, no matter where your travels take you, you pick up that phone and you tell your brother you love him. You ask your brother if there's anything you could do for him. This was what his parents instilled in him with his brothers. And he was passing this gift on to us. I thought about that gift in that parking lot and I couldn't lose that. And if you want to know how that gift stuck, all these decades later, In Dallas, Texas, 1,200 miles from where we grew up, Mark, Jeff, my father, and I all live walking distance from each other. That's no accident. That's the bond that my father instilled in us that I was unwilling to lose, and that was my tipping point to begin my recovery. And and now that relationship has recovered as you've recovered. That's right. That that third realization that you made, was there ever, I think – a listener that's kind of hearing this maybe apply to their own life story might be interested to know if um, that was ever articulated to you. Was there ever a threat? You will not see us again if, or was this something you knew you were approaching naturally? My younger brother, Jeff, told somebody who told me, so this is just hearsay, that if I ever use cocaine again, I would never see him again. Now, again, that's hearsay. Yeah. Uh, Jeff's never said that he said that, but here's what I do know. I had stopped going to events to see my nephews. I had stopped going to dinner with my family. They had stopped asking me to a lot of events. I wouldn't want me all coked up around my family. I don't blame them. This was out of shame? Embarrassment? For me? Yeah. Uh, no, for, it's for, for me, well, now they know from 2005. Now my family knows that I have an issue. Right. My logical solution was to distance myself from my family. So I didn't have to put it in front of them again and only hang out with, I hung out with other lawyers who did drugs, other non-lawyers. Some of them are dead now. Some of them are in prison. You know, this is part of addiction, not just in the legal profession, all around the world. And these problems landed you in jail once. Yes. Tell us about that. Oh, that was fun. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Summer 1990, after my first divorce, out drinking peach schnapps or whatever it was, Pulling up the highway, 75 miles an hour, a state trooper pulls him behind me, maybe a half block from my house. <sighs> so of course I'm of course I, you know, I I can't I do the alphabet backward at that point. I, you know what? I can't I, do that you sober by the way. I thought I passed. Yeah. I thought I did great. <laughs> of course I you know, I break the first rule you tell everyone, don't do the don't blow, you know, sh- shut up. Right. <laughs> and this was before laws had changed. Back then it was 0.10. Okay. So it was this 65-year-old state trooper, and he was as nice as can be. We're heading back down to what's called Sterrett Justice Center. He's like, sorry, dude, you didn't pass that test. You may think you touched your nose. And so (laughs) he pulled aside when I said the handcuffs were too tight to let me on, you know, to loosen my cuffs. And in the car, I'm I'm, I'm so convinced that I'm not intoxicated. When I pass the breathalyzer, or are you going to take me back to my car? He's like, dude, you're not going to pass. But yeah, on that miracle, if you do, somebody will take you back to your car. <laughs> so we get down we get down to Sterrett Justice Center. And at the time, I was wearing a dangling earring for my left ear. 
Wow. I was also, I also, had a problem, yeah. I also had a problem with steroid addiction, which is another issue that uh, I don't talk about, you know, in the context of this book. Sure. But I was also addicted to steroids and I was huge. So I was wearing this short little muscle shirt thing. I had a earring dangling from my ear. Here wow. I'm arrested for DWI. And in Stared at that time, I don't know if that's how it is now, thank goodness, but it's this assembly line of deputy sheriffs where you're fingerprinting and it's an assembly line of verbal abuse, okay? <laughs> they are swearing at everyone. They are humili humiliating everyone. So this one deputy sheriff gets a millimeter from my nose and he goes, you're a stinking lawyer. What's this earring? You stink. You're a loser. You're a disgrace to the profession. And I remember thinking, I earned this. <laughs> this is my punishment. I earned this. And so into the drunk tank, thinking, you know, this is where my life is going. I'm a mess. Yeah. The short-term awareness. And I'm sitting in the drunk tank and uh, there are kids crying there, you know, and everything. And, as beautiful and fresh as can be. Oh, oh, man, it smells like urine and it's disgusting. <laughs> and so I make bail and my buddy picks me up. And and it's funny. I remember a story from the, the, the arraignment. The arraignments are on video. I wrote a story from the Aaron Raymond. I'm sitting there just, I was crying. And there's this one guy who's screaming and ah, rah, rah, rah. And the deputy sheriff goes, dude, if you don't sit down and keep quiet, we're going to put you back in the drunk tank and you'll have to go wait for the next cycle. Wait for the next arraignment. The guy sits there, looks around. Rah, 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 and they just come up there, hug him and haul him out. I remember that like it's yesterday. But in any so you felt super safe in that environment. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. and this was 1990, so this was 15 years before. Before your recovery. Even before, no, that's 17 years before right. my recovery, but 15 years before I became suicidal. Yeah. So the next day I was called my father crying, called my brothers crying. The advice was just not talk of uh, recovery or anything because really no one knew I had a problem. I didn't think I had a problem. I was just out drinking like everyone drinks. The culture of the profession, right? Right. I made a mistake. Yeah. That was my view. And DUIs were pretty common back then. Uh, I don't know, but it certainly, there was shame, there was embarrassment. And the next day, I, I was uh, a litigation manager for an insurance company. I walk in, I tell my boss, I think I'm going to get fired. He's like, just get a good lawyer. Yeah. That was it. You said everyone makes mistakes. Your brother said the same thing, right? So No, my brother just said, you effed up, get a good lawyer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was it. That was the discussion. There was no talk of anything. Right. And So what would you say to a listener right now who's, this is kind of like percolating and they're hearing things that might be sort of familiar in their own lives who are not going to go just check themselves in somewhere, or going to go to their first AA meeting. What's that first baby step for self-care that you could start maybe? Uh, am, I, am I ingesting something, alcohol or whatever, that is affecting my life on a personal level, on a social level, on a professional level? Can you look at yourself and say you are performing at a high level, at the highest level you could? Ask yourself that first. That's the first step. Because whether you're a lawyer or a law student, the first step always has to be recognizing you have an issue. And so can you get to a place of self-awareness and say, look, I am not doing as well as I could be. We don't have to get to the stage of saying, I'm an alcoholic or I have a drug problem. How's my marriage? Mm -hmm. How's my family relationships? How's my work? Yeah. Why don't we start with that? 
And then if you can look at yourself and say things could be better, then we can say how much better. And then we maybe we can get to a place of saying, okay, there really is a serious drinking issue. Maybe it's an issue of harm reduction where you're not an alcoholic, quote unquote alcoholic, but you could be drinking less. There's a wide range of drinking issues, you know, that, that we can be on the scale of that may not necessarily be something that puts you into residential treatment right. or you have to go into Alcoholics Anonymous or another 12-step uh, type of 12-step. That's only one of them. Yeah. So having an honest look in the mirror and just say, how am I doing? You know, how is this relationship? How is that relationship? Isn't that a good first start? It sounds like wisdom to me and also probably a good place to take a break. We'll be right back. This episode of At The Bar is brought to you by CBA Insurance Agency in partnership with Attorney Protective, part of the Berkshire Hathaway family, offering legal malpractice insurance. Attorney Protective has the experience, expertise, and financial stability to defend the strongest cases without limitation. It's your good name. Let us help you keep it. For a free price estimate, visit attorneyprotective.com backslash CBA podcast. All right. So, Brian, uh, we left off before at a place where you know, our listeners may be able to look themselves in the mirror and uh, reach some point of recognition. If they get there, if they're looking in the mirror and they answer those questions a certain way, what are their treatment options? What's, what's out there? If you feel you were at a point where support is definitely needed to get help, there are quite a few options. One of the great places to start is the legal, the lawyer's assistance program. Uh, they are experts in this. They know what the resources are available. They can help you begin that journey. Tell us, tell her, for our listeners who don't know, what, what's the LAP about? What do they do? The lawyer's assistance program is there to help lawyers, not with just drinking issues or drug issues, but a wide variety of mental health issues. One of the problems we have in the legal profession is there is this systematic stigmatized belief that the lawyer's assistance program, whether it's TLAP here or you know Illinois Lawyer's Assistance Program here, is an arm of the state bar. Right. And there is this fear that if people go to the lawyer's assistance program, it's automatically going to get to the state bar. That is not correct. Now, if the state bar, if they're in trouble for something, if there's a disciplinary issue and they are sent to the legal assistance program by the state bar, yes, there are reports made. But if you go to them on their own, no, it, the conversations are protected by statute. To show you how stigmatized this is in the face of logic, last year I gave a presentation to a Dallas Bar Association event, and it was a bunch of seasoned litigators. After the presentation, one of the lawyers comes up to me and goes, Brian, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not confidential. State Bar is going to find out. How do you know that? Another lawyer told me. Well, how does he know that? Well, I think another lawyer told him. You are a seasoned trial lawyer and you're coming <laughs> to me with a— Hearsay. You're coming to me with a guy told a guy who told a guy. Yeah, but he's got a guy. But he's got a guy. So you're coming to me with triple hearsay, <laughs> something you wouldn't dream of walking into a courtroom with, right? Uh, as fact, He's, he laughs and he goes, yeah, I know, but it's not confidential. That is how overpowering the stigma is around seeking help with the legal assistance programs. Now that we are breaking through that stigma with the help of the legal assistance programs, with the help of the state bar, with the help people getting out there talking about legal assistance programs, yeah. that is a great place to start. If you are in a 
small to large or a mid-sized to large firm, you may in fact or probably do have an employee's assistance program. Right. They are also confidential. You can go to the employee's assistance program. I know a lot of, or not a lot, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that, some bigger law firms I know are starting to experience with point, point lawyers. Who are you, those? Those are lawyers who may be in recovery, who somebody can go to without fear of reprisal and let them know what's going on. Okay. And are trying to educate the, the people in the firm that this is how you can come to this person. That is something. There's 12, as far as actual recovery modalities, there's 12-step. That's how I got sober. I am also in psychiatric counseling to deal with how I got there, right? 12-step is dealing with the alcohol and drugs. Right. How I got there, all the mental health issues leading up to that, I am in psychiatric counseling today. No shame in that. I take antidepressants medications today. I find no shame in that. If you're if 12 steps not your thing, you're just turned off by whatever, there is what is known as smart recovery, which is based on behavior modification. It is it is much different than 12 step. Okay. If you are if we if religious faith is a big part of your recovery, we have celebrate recovery, which is 12 step based, which is a Christian 12 step. There is holistic recovery, which is more of a wellness-based type recovery. I am recently been made aware of refuge recovery, which is Buddhist. There is a way to begin recovery for almost any personality now. We did not have that when I was first going through this. Like I said, you were either in 12-step, you were in a hospital, or you weren't in recovery. That is not the case today. There are many different paths we can take. Do you know the uh, contact information for the LAP or a website? I think you can go to the American Bar Association website and they have the contact information for every legal assistance program in the state. Oh, that's great. So, that's a good resource. So tell us a little bit about where you are right now. What are you doing with your life now? Right now, well, the Addicted Lawyer just came out two months ago. Yeah. And so it's been an interesting journey since I wrote it. It was a journey of over two years to write it. So and then... While I was writing it, the Bar Association study came out, so that was fortuitous. Yeah, I, didn't know, I didn't know it was coming out. Yeah. And so then the New York Times article came out, The Lawyer, The Addict, which I was mentioned in the book was mentioned. Yeah. And since that happened, it's really been kind of a whirlwind where I've been approached by a lot of bar associations, not so much law schools, but a lot of bar associations, a lot of legal assistance programs. What I love to do is share my journey. So I write for Above the Law, the Addictive Lawyer column. Yeah, I, I read that. Starting to formulate my next book, and I speak. I speak to anyone who asks me to speak. Uh, two days before this, I was in Miami speaking to the Cuban American Bar Association. No pun intended. No pun intended. That's right. <laughs> that was a great pun, though. When I opened yeah. up to say, right. "Let me get the elephant out of the room." <laughs> I am cute. I am a Cuban, but I'm not Cuban. Right. <laughs> okay. So they love that. But uh, I've always wanted to say that, so it was it was a great place to say it. That's what I do. I speak. I speak. I write. And I just try to pay it forward. I try to do the next right thing. I get asked, do you regret anything? Do you? I don't regret the journey because the journey got me here talking to everyone here alive, sharing my story. I regret the collateral damage. I regret the ex-wives that I hurt. I regret the family that I hurt. I regret all the people that I hurt along the way. But 
I can't engage in revisionist history and go back and change that. So what I can do is try to help just one person every time I speak. Try to just reach one person that emails me. Try to lay a path for one person who may decide based on my story. They identify with one thing, whether it's bullying, whether it's family, whether it's recovery. And they say, okay, I'm going to try. Is my redemption for the people I hurt along the way, the collateral damage. That is what I do. It sounds like you, through your journey, did find your life's purpose. That is right. My life's purpose, I knew back then, was never to be a lawyer. We are a profession of thinkers. I'm a feeler. I'm a feeler who went into a profession of feelers, Mm. helping people. That little jewel of zen sounds like a good place to take one more break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. And we're back. Before we wrap up today, we're going to play a game we like to call Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Each of us has done a bit of uh, research and found some of the strangest laws on the books in this country of ours. We're going to summarize one of those real laws, make another one up completely, and each of us are going to guess or see rather if we can distinguish which one is real and which one is fiction. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? Um, Well, we'll find out, (laughs) Brian. guessing games. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. I'll go first. All right. Uh, this, the, the law is my husband's favorite law. He's also an attorney, but, um, the first one I'm going to talk about is called the Nunchuck Act and it is actually an Illinois law. Um, it, and it basically says you are guilty of a class C misdemeanor if you own nunchucks or any other sort of martial art weapon and do not register it. And you have to register it with, like, this administrative agency that's been created by uh, Illinois. Like a FOIA license or something? Kind of, uh, but I don't think it's quite FOIA, as stringent. Yeah. You know, with Chicago's strict handgun laws, I'm going valid. Valid. Yes. Okay. So let me tell you number two, and then you'll have to guess. Right. That's the game, right? Yeah, that's the game. Right? That's the game. All right. So the second one I'm going to talk about is called the Refrigerator Act. And you are guilty of a Class C misdemeanor if you leave a refrigerator over a certain size outside of your house. Um, Like, do you throw it out in the garbage or whatever? And you could lease the property, you could own the property, whatever. If you allow there to be a refrigerator outside of your house, at any point, you are guilty of a class. Is is that a state statute or a county ordinance? Both of these are state statutes. So we're to decide whether that's made up or not? Yep. Which one's made up? I'm thinking that one's made up. I just can't envision the refrigerator police, you know, coming out on a 911 call. I'm going that one's made up. I'm going to keep it interesting, go the other way, just so we have some friction here. Sally? 430-ILCS-150-0.01, abandoned refrigerator. (laughs) You got it. I mean, there's good policy reasons behind that. You don't want to say your refrigerator The refrigerator police at 911 call. Yeah. There's a huge refrigerator out there. Come on out. Yeah. 
officer, <laughs> my neighbor just violated the abandoned yeah. refrigerator. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. All right. All right. You guys ready? Round two. In Massachusetts, it's illegal to manufacture, sell, or possess explosive golf balls. Violators are subject to a $100 fine and up to a year imprisonment. That's option number one. Okay. Option number two. In Montana, it's illegal to leave your horse tied to a parking meter without feeding it. The meter, not the horse. <laughs> I thought the horse. Okay. Okay. I'm going with option number one is being made up. I mean, Montana, horses, just sounds legit. Sally, what do you think? Isn't there like a, some, I don't golf at all, but isn't there some sort of big golf thing in Massachusetts? Some sort of big golf thing? A big golf thing. Explo- like, exploding like a, golf like a, thing? Like a golf course? Like a course. Like where people th- play golf? people yeah. use a club balls. and hit the baseball into They're, the goalie. I think they're in most states. It, into the what did you say? Yes. <laughs> goalie? That's golf, right? Yeah, that's yes, totally. Yes, yes. I think that one's the right one. So you think that one's the right <laughs> yes. one? Um Ironically, you're correct. (laughs) Massachusetts General Law, Part 1, Title 20, Chapter 148. No exploding golf balls. I want to know who exploded a golf ball that that somebody initially decided, you know, (laughs) that we need to do that. I think we need some due diligence on this. I do, too. We need to have—we should have brought the committee notes on The original exploding golf ball. I would like to see that. Legislative notes here. (laughs) Maybe we could check that out for the next pod. Uh, Unfortunately, that's going to be our pod for today. I want to thank our guest, Brian Cuban, for joining us. It's a lot of fun. I hope you'll consider joining us again next time. Absolutely. It was a great great time. Thank you. And I also want to thank everybody who makes this machine run, including my co-host today, Sally Pritt. Prisetsky Steel. Sally Steel is easier. Sally Steel. It's a, <laughs> alliteration. A real upgrade. So from I can just Sally use that Pisetsky. from now on, right? So yeah, Sally Steel is good. It's kind of a, kind of a movie so much name better. too, Sally Steel. Your Honor, Sally Steel here. That, yeah, I mean, that, yeah. you, that scared amazing. me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Also want to thank Jen Byrne, our executive producer, and our sound crew, Ricardo Islas and Steve Wyrick. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Insta, and Twitter at CBA at the bar at CBA at the bar. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for all of us here at the CBA, this is John Amarillo, and we'll see you soon at the bar.